Hello and welcome to episode 237 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is the 3rd of May 2018. That weird sound was me turning around to find out what day it was. My name is Chris Thurston and I'm joined by Tom Senior. Good day or Good evening. Evening or, or day morning. or morning indeed. Happy listening everyone. <laughs> uh, it's going to be relatively chilled out, maybe a little bit shorter than usual pod this week because we had a bit of a last minute personnel crisis. No one can find Alex Wiltshire <laughs> <laughs> or Pip. Uh, Everyone, everyone busy or missing, but we are here to deliver mild takes. That's what we do best. On a very news-free sort of week. There's nothing happening in the games industry at the moment. We're in that kind of spot, 43, where it's, we're just dying out there, Chris. <laughs> well, just yeah, covering games and just dying out like, there. I, I'm a bit detached from the, the day in, day out of running a video games news cycle, Tom, but yeah. I know that it's your... It's pretty bare out there. It's the desert. We're in the desert bit of the... Uh, uh, which always tends to happen. We were lucky last week because we got Frostpunk and Battletech, which are both really cool games and really interesting yeah. very PC games as well. Uh, which is, which is great because it's something to talk about, but my God, the need water. Need <laughs> in a way, we, we actually kind of blew it by talking about both of them in one episode. Mm, I suppose so. We could have spaced them out a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, so there is, there has, however, been one, um, splash of, musky cowboy water what am i talking about <laughs> yeah all over the sweet smell of beard oil face and neck of the, the games industry <laughs> the sweet tangy sweat of a wild west fella getting beaten up by other wild west fellas also with beards uh what we're trying to say in our own roundabout <laughs> meandering way is that the there was a, another trailer for red dead redemption 2 which is about as close to big news as we get this week i think yeah third one uh and it's still not for pc but I'd be insane if it didn't come out for PC, yeah, right? Be mad, be like, mad if it didn't come out for PC. Given how big GTA Online was, almost every game Rockstar have made, apart from Red Dead One, <laughs> yeah, and Rockstar Table Tennis, <laughs> and maybe some other, arguably their two best games, <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> uh, so maybe I don't know what they've got against the PC in this regard, but yeah, I mean, I would, I would be amazed if it didn't come to PC, uh, and especially you're right, the online component is one of the most exciting things about Red Dead Two for me after playing uh, GTA Online, yeah. GTA Online has, uh, like a bunch of kind of technical problems that I've run into. Like as a group piece of game, we've done loads of kind of diaries and we've done all the heists as well as far as we could. And it is, it's super, super fun, except for the dropouts and the fact that the sort of infrastructure of the thing feels like it isn't quite designed to handle, uh, the, the experience it's trying to create. Uh, and you yeah. have to remember how old GTA 5 is now. Like the PC version came out years ago but the actual original gta online was released years before that as well it's almost five years old now right? That's yeah what move more. yeah and and considering considering what it can do online like for a five-year-old game it's actually very impressive but we're looking at red dead 2 now and if that can have like a if that could be like a, a stable online infrastructure with a similar sort of co-op experience in a multiplayer open world that could be incredible that could be the best thing yeah it could be so good if it doesn't have a cowboy royale mode i will, <laughs> I will genuinely do some sort of forfeit mm. i think they'd be insane yes for it not to have 100%. yeah like cowboy Fortnite something, something. <laughs> so if we look out over the world of video games at the moment and what and we don't know everything's coming out because e3 hasn't happened yet but uh, rumours for the new battlefield is that it's going to be set in World War Two, and it's going to have a battle royale mode. The rumours for Call How of does Duty that work in World War Two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in um, Call of Duty Black Ops Four, um, which is rumoured to be coming out this year, also rumoured to have a battle royale mode in it. 
everyone's going to be everyone's basically shitting themselves to make it a battle royale version of their game as quickly as possible because it is the new hotness and i uh, bring it on i'm quite happy about this because i will i, I don't love Fortnite very much and i, I like I, I don't love PUBG. But one of those games will get me. One of those games will, yeah, will do PUBG a really got good me. version of I like PUBG. Yeah, I mean, I quite enjoyed it, but uh, I still, I just want to see more people trying it out and trying different versions of it, you know? Yeah, you know, this is off topic, but I replayed the beginning of uh, Modern Warfare 1 oh, this week. Yeah. Um, I, like, most of the thing I've been playing have been for work. But it kind of struck me, like, it, it's really fascinating to return to that game because it's so vastly influential, and it basically <laughs> totally derailed the shooter by putting the shooter on rails <laughs> right. for a for years like a substantial amount of time for sure like yeah. like and yet its limitations are so pronounced now and obviously mm. that just comes from being dated very technically impressive for its time but it's such a kind of it's it feels like a funny thing now to have completely over overridden the industry like with how sort of um just how oppressively linear shooters became for like this kind of mad sprint and it feels like yeah. the, the end of that like from that sort of like all edges sanded off michael bay experience to we have to put hardcore time-consuming survival <laughs> like open world survival open world survival in our modes. game or we're doomed is is just some sort of that's epochal kind of crazy, shift in expectation yeah yeah that's really really cool i, I think that uh the i do love modern warfare 4 uh, Call of Duty 4, Modern Warfare 1. Um, <laughs> goodness me. Uh, Everton nil. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, you're right. It's, it's an incredibly restrictive form of design, but I think there are some incredibly well paced missions in that campaign that still stand up. So I think like all gillied up is still a, a great tense, uh, yeah. roller coaster level design type of level design. And, and we'll touch back on this when I start to talk about Tomb Raider in a bit. Um, which also like the bit I played was very linear and actually picked up all the wrong lessons. Uh, and it's, it, it takes quite it, a lot of skill to pace a, a, a linear mission mm. like that well. And there is a certain skill to that. And I think Modern Warfare 1 is, is one of the better executions of that. And it perhaps wasn't really bested by anything else that came after it, which is why it felt like such a, a dirge. Not in that, afterwards. not in that space. Like I think this is, I think you see it with, with Infinity Ward, like mm. with, um, Oh, I almost said Infinity sure. War there, but that's a different <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, with like Titanfall, right? Like Titanfall, Titanfall 2, 2 yeah, yeah. Like being one of the best campaigns because it mixes just enough freedom in with that kind of linearity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's startling to return to the days of, and we joke about it now, but the, the days of the, like such a profound illusion of freedom that I don't think I should get away with now. Hmm. Like I, I feel the same thing actually returning to Uncharted, which might also influence our, have an influence on our Tomb Raider chat as well. Yeah. Like, there's this thing of like, wow, this is such a spectacle and it came so close to delivering a quote unquote cinematic experience, but it's the game where you run and someone else opens a door for you and then you run and then someone else has opened a door for you. And it doesn't really matter if you shoot the people or not. The game just sort of happens. Yeah. And it feels like people don't tolerate now. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. It's people sort of do love it though. It shows very well. That's the thing. Like that type of level shows very well at conferences it shows very well in trailers it lets you do kind of it lets you show lara doing really cool stuff and you know yes falling yeah. off things in dramatic, dramatic ways in a way that imagine making a trailer out of a battle royale mode <laughs> or, or turning that mm. to a cell i almost feel like it's healthy for the industry as a whole that I, I don't know if this is totally true but it feels to me like e3 is losing some of its relevance mm. as the biggest games in the world start to come from more and more unexpected quarters yeah right nice. nobody expected the battle royale bolt on mode 
to Epic's weird zombie survival building game <laughs> to be to have 45 million players. <laughs> no. Nobody expected that. No. And similarly, no one expected like a dude who makes armor mods to go join a Korean developer and then come out with the second biggest game in the world, mm, right? Sure. Like, and that stuff never has, you know, I always remember this from last year when uh, PUBG was announced for Xbox at E3 and it looked like the shonkiest, dodgiest game there in a show full of really slick E3 friendly yeah. traditional AAA games that look increasingly out of touch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Like now, now that COD and stuff are scrambling to catch up with shonky early access games <laughs> such a weird world but i think it's awesome like these phenomenons always come from the pc like yeah from minecraft through to the battle royale stuff like it happens time and time again uh because word of mouth on the pc can spread so quickly so it's like the the infrastructure for that type of word of mouth reaction doesn't exist on the consoles yeah uh, so it's people just hanging out in forums and, and chatting about what they're playing and, and you know going along with their friends and talking about this cool new thing on pc that's what seems to set off like make a battle royale suddenly happen or minecraft suddenly happen uh it's that it's that combination of just easy communication between players on the same platform uh and in the more restricted kind of console spaces yeah it, it's harder for that to happen yeah so we should get back to red dead yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but look but actually this is relevant because one thing that strikes me is about like so I love Red Dead Redemption 1, mm-hmm. or at least it occupies a very fond place in my heart. It's easily my favorite Rockstar game sure. uh, by a long way. However, I'm yet to feel it for Red Dead 2, and mm, I'm not same. sure entirely why. Same here. Yeah. But I feel like the trailers have been quite weak. Mm. And it might be for reasons similar to the ones we were just talking about. It might be that like I'm no longer really impressed or easily impressed by someone's ability to have cinematics in their game. Yeah. Right. And... The trailers are super weird because obviously they don't really give much away from the plot at all. They're sort of vaguely about a theme of some kind, but it's the same theme that Rockstar have always done, which is that being a criminal is very hard and a little bit romantic look a woman is sad. Like, that's every GTA thing. GTA is nastier than Red Dead, but like, um, like, I've seen this song and dance so many times that I am not sold and they're not showing scenes no it feels like they show one line it's loads from like every different cut scene in the game yeah yeah like and i can see in my mind's eye the bit where you walk up to the big letter h and then someone who's naming with with h monologues to you about why crime is hard Mm. for a bit but also tough and manly but also hard and sad and funny and that's all of the things Mm. um and then they say a line like these people gonna start a fire and then you go and you uh you have to shoot a train and then you do that and then you go and collect five coyote skins and then you notice that the big rock looks like the big rock on your map so you do that for a bit like the, you know what i mean like the actual yeah. gameness of the game like is completely absent from these things but i also it also implies that the game is the game that i know in a way that i just don't feel i don't feel yet you know so one of the, the most exciting moments in trailers in the last um sort of five ten years for me is the moment in the witcher 3 trailer um where Geralt is riding a horse full tilt through a forest in skelliger and comes out onto the plain and you see the whole the beautiful kind of norse icy tundra Mm. stretch out before you with a castle in the distance and the sea all around you and and it just you could feel the cold of it and you know that that's 
you know that that's what the game is going to be like. You know, you're going to get to do that in the game. And that is also surely a thing that you're going to get to do in Red Dead, not with a kind of fancy icy tundra, but with the fucking Wild West and yeah. all of Rockstar's talent behind that open world. And it, uh, that's the, the, the just the enormous absent thing from these trailers so far. And because the, the game's out this year, right? It's out later this year. I guess so. And, so and ha- but we haven't seen just your character riding over a hill and the whole world stretching out before you. And that's going to be, I just, you know, that's going to be incredible. Like Rockstar so good at that they're so good at places and this is such a kind of this generation of technology and Rockstar's talent for creating those spaces with red dead 2 and the wild west so yeah that's a good point actually because it has been a long time since they made a big place like um like gta 5 is such an impressive environment i'd argue more impressive environment than a story certainly Mm. um like and i think graham used to say that he kind of wanted every game to be set there like Mm. he just wanted it to be a platform and i kind of want that for red dead Two as well, like Red Dead One opens with that introduction where you basically go through the whole map of the train and like yeah, yeah. you get to see this landscape that you're going to get to explore. That's kind of what I want to see. I think that's yeah, you're right. That's the thing that would excite me about Red Dead Redemption mm. Two. Like I'm, I, I am. Um, I think I've gr- grown out of those stories to a big degree. Like it has to, it has to be surprising, and it just doesn't look like it's going to be. Yeah, I think because cinema is so much better at telling these stories than rockstar have traditionally been mm. but they're in love with being cinema and that's just not like as it's just not as good that's like, the big friction with them though like with that with the games they make the, these days that's the big thing with gta 5 for me was that i didn't like the bits where it was trying to be a, a gangster film i love the bits where i was walking around la uh let's walk around the city and just going off into the desert but they're so incredibly good at that. The second part of that, like they, yeah. that they they make incredible open worlds. And GTA was made in a different generation of hardware. So the idea of actually then applying that to a modern, a modern you know series of consoles and hopefully eventually PC is everyone should be excited about that. I think. Yeah, I think that's the thing. I agree with you. Yeah. However, you just there's it. an element of, but I still think there's an element of extending benefit of the doubt. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like there's an yeah. element of like. You trust that that's what they've done because it's what they always do. <laughs> However, same with Tomb Raider. Actually. They yeah. really haven't shown it. You know, mm-hmm. like what they've shown is just cowboys talking about cowboys. Yep. And like, like mm-hmm. even even something like um, because I think what, what makes Red Dead One for me is like it actually has quite a lot of heart. Mm. Like it's it's a it's a familiar story in some ways, but it's like it has moments of like real um, relative sensitivity for rockstar like uh its use of music is su- much subtler yeah like it has gentler character moments it has gentler kind of non-combat related moments um i guess maybe i could understand why you'd leave that stuff out of the trailers mm. but i i want that sense of it like i want that sense of the understanding that that was what was good about yeah red dead because i think maybe my my fear for it is um it feels so much like a retread like the trailer kind of establishes that it's set in 1899. It's the dying days of the old West. Uh, the last kind of cowboys are kind of bandits are kind of being edged out by the expansion of, uh, you know, the American nation into these formerly un- uncharted and unregulated wildernesses. Mm. That's exactly what Red Dead One was about. Yeah. Red Dead One ends in 1912. Like there's nothing like new about that. And that's what worries me. I think mm. that like, I really want to see that they have a different story to tell with that setting mm. or that they don't, but they just want to create a beautiful place and that you run around it in multiplayer, which is fine. Actually, I will play that in battle royale mode. That's <laughs> maybe a good way of receiving what they're best at. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, so the, one of the great moments in red dead one is, uh, 
crossing the border into Mexico's mm. Jose Gonzalez plays. Um, and it's, uh, like, it's actually a direct sort of translation of what Rockstar do incredibly well from the GTA franchise into this Wild West setting. They're just incredibly good at nailing pop culture moments, sort of merging different bits of pop culture into, into, like, yeah. into a moment, basically. And the idea you take, like, a modern musician and then impose it on, uh, you know, a very, very mm. kind of staid genre, the Wild West genre, uh, and create this quite magical moment out of that. That's like Rockstar at their best. That's where they're, mm. they're properly, they're using the, the, budget muscle to actually get the licensing to do that but also they're using they're just like combining things that shouldn't be combined to create this is the thing right like how like so honest to god i think on the most consistently impressive thing about rockstar's not storytelling but like atmosphere creation mm. is their ability to match a cool song to a soundtrack uh, sorry to a to a sunset mm-hmm. or like to a bit of landscape you know what i mean yeah like gta's most evocative moments for me particularly five whose characters i basically uniformly hated mm. is like when uh kind of a cool song comes on and you're cresting a hill in on a motorbike or yeah, something and totally, like totally. the game all comes together like that's its most i think maybe like kind of people get addicted to talking about writing is the main vessel for games tell a story or something like that or mm. express a mood or express a moment and i think rockstar are obsessed with telling a story through these kinds of uh highly staged kind of cutscenes. but actually the most effective moments of those moments and that's what that ride into mexico is right yeah, like it's for sure it's the it's the combination of the music and the landscape and your own control in that moment mm. like i think i might have said this on the podcast before but i fell off a cliff <laughs> during that moment <laughs> really? yeah my horse fell in a river yeah. i died and mm. when i woke up it was i was in mexico was, and was jose gonzalez, gonzalez had gone away <laughs> <laughs> and so i actually didn't see that the first time i played uh, okay yes. uh, red dead I, I got, there's a great uh, there's another great music moment late in red dead towards the finale and it has a f- cracking finale mm. um which achieves a similar thing so i do understand why people appreciate that moment so much but i fucked it up but it's good that i had the freedom to fuck it up because <laughs> yeah. it's like it's sort of my moment my failure to kind of respect the moment i was going too fast on my horse and i fell in the river mm. um like yeah, that's, that's, I think, what, I, what I'd be looking forward to about it. But, like, even then it would be repeating a trick. I don't know. Yeah. The, um, the music in, uh, the Red Dead trailer was beautiful. Um, that's true. Bespoke. Yeah. Like, it really, that's my favorite part of the trailer was the music, actually. It's really, mm. really, really awesome. They haven't shown uh, much of the open world yet, really. Just... No, hardly any of it. The, the very first sort of trailer they released was sort of slow panning shots of just like a montage of bits of, the open world but there's no sense at all of it as a space to, and how you might explore it and what it'd be like mm. but yeah maybe they're obviously saving that for say the best for later yeah sure and like um i imagine you know more will come but like yeah and it, i guess in a year that feels at the moment still a little bit light on mm. traditional like big blockbuster yeah blockbuster <laughs> block yeah good blockbuster stuff yes good yeah blockbuster <laughs> then this is it but yeah, yeah, yeah like sure. maybe i just feel a bit cold on it maybe i'll get excited like i hope so mm. so anthem seems to have slipped and i can't remember i don't know where it's at, at the moment is it it was delayed mm. this is later, later this what year. bioware is doing yeah um so i'm very excited very interested to see what they do with anthem uh and i'm very i would be very interested to know why it was suddenly booted back after ea experienced a massive loot box controversy with uh, battlefront 2 yeah well two things right mm-hmm. ea experiences a massive loot box controversy also destiny 2 stumbles yes like i can see that pointing a game like anthem back a few notches on the mm. on the development track mm. you know like that's a you know that that's a game that it feels like i don't know say it's, it's necessarily going to be 
like Destiny 100%, but it definitely feels like a game that was conceived in an era when Destiny to be was that, hot shit, right? For sure, like, for sure. Um, yeah, interesting. I, I, I really find it hard to, I, mean, I appreciate this is Chris in negative mode, but like, I have also struggled, I think, to get enthusiasm for that mm. because I, I mean, I love Bioware and I love their work, but this isn't the game I would want them to make. Yeah. Like, I don't think they're the people you point at. I mean, in their credit, they made good multiplayer modes for Mass Effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 it's not, if you ask most people, like... What do you want from a Bioware? Yeah. You know, a big budget Bioware game. Not necessarily the persistent universe, mm. you know, uh, a gamer's service thing. And I think EA do have a bit of a bad habit of stapling Bioware to whatever genre they want to have, but mm-hmm. don't. So, sure. the open world game, for example, or whatever, right? Like... Mm. I think it's, um, regarding Destiny, it's very telling that we, we put together a new section and totally forgot that a new expansion was announced mm. and is coming out like any minute now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how that game star has fallen, uh, is that the right expression? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Ever since it, since, you know, it came out and I used to love Destiny. We used to love I, Destiny. And kind of, I will play it again at the, when the expansion comes out. I'll play it as well. Because I bought the expansion such, pass. Such so, you've just got already owned that. Yeah. Um, and I am looking forward to it because I do like that game. But yeah, you're right. Like, I also don't know if that's, I think that's a combination of obviously it, it, it underperforming, but also I think it's a combination of my life changing. Like, I don't yeah. think I'm in a position to, be the destiny man mm. i once was with destiny 2 right necessarily right like even when i was really into it i wasn't having time didn't have time to do the raid no so no, that's a good point yeah i will buy it just out of sort of sense of weird duty <laughs> to my destiny life that was uh it's on mars though it's the what the it's the war mind and uh, yeah i think hooks. it's sort of in a way it's kind of a shame because they're kind of getting to story beats that were kind of teased in the first game at long last. Stuff that, <laughs> yeah, t- stuff that like 2015 Chris is super excited about, mm. and 2018 Chris is now approaching it with this sort of mind of like, oh, they got around to that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> yeah. well, I already paid for it, so I guess I'll play it. Which... Something about Destiny Two and like Destiny One was super cryptic. Like the uh, the, it, the way it sort of delivered its law was you had to dig for it. Yeah, uh, and actually, like the, the grimoire in some ways is dumb but actually like gathering all the books of sorrow and stuff like that and actually sort of a bit of a barrier between simply being told what the story is actually created for me an extra kind of degree of uh intrigue that destiny 2 has lacked yeah I th- yes i think that's a really interesting problem from like a narrative design point of view yeah because the books of sorrow and destiny 1 are legit one of the best bits of sci-fi world building yeah. in any medium it is really good like yeah. for a couple of years like they're incredible yeah it's so good why are they in that game <laughs> and i love that game yeah but why this like how did you write this great bit of like transcendental like sort of crazy stream of consciousness sci-fi uh like almost like allegory like almost like a, some sort of like old english poem <laughs> uh as world building thing like how does that exist in this game to support a big dungeon <laughs> like full yeah, of worms yeah. like why is that i'm glad it does exist like and destiny 2 was great because it like initially and in that love for it and that happy 60 70 hours that both of us spent with it yeah was so much like oh wow they just they brought this stuff to the surface they made a story that was about this stuff they moved the story forward which mm. is the thing destiny 1 never did yeah. destiny 1 just always added stuff to the status quo without actually moving any part of the status quo forward yeah and like it was so good and then everyone stopped and i think it was partly a reason some of the mystery went away like they started to answer some of the mysteries they started to bring characters who were just sort of alluded to into the story and they're all basically the same yeah and like 
when they're all reputation vendors and it's like, and if yeah. you, if you respect my mystery enough, you can have my hat. <laughs> <laughs> you just sort of like, come, you know, so Osiris became like a legendary figure. Yeah. Cause the trials of Osiris in the first game was the, this elite PVP challenge. Uh, and, you know, the, there was a kind of cult for Osiris attached to it. And from loads of weapon descriptions, you get a sense of this warrior that's sort of lost in time in the Vex network, this network of sentient machines that has kind of spread across the uh, solar system. And he's in there somewhere. Is he one of them? Has he been assimilated? Yeah, yeah. Is he that skeleton on Mercury in the first game? <laughs> exactly. Things things I've literally written in lore articles, PC game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and he's this really kind of uh, almost like a mythic figure in that universe. And then you meet him and he's like, uh, I'll have five tokens, please. Hello. <laughs> Kick you out. <laughs> but it's like, uh, but it's, uh, also like <laughs> it's also the fact that like, you know, huge success in the first game was like, you know what? People really liked connecting to the NPCs a little bit more. Yeah. And they like it more the more that NPCs like Nathan Fillion. <laughs> like they start off getting Nathan Fillion to play a character. Yeah, just yeah. let him play, be Nathan Fillion. People mm. will like that. Until the point is like almost every character from the lore is coming back as some form of Nathan Fillion. Mm. Like, mm. you know, you, your old man Nathan Fillion. You got your feisty cowboy Nathan Fillion. You got that character they added in Rise of Iron for the first game, who's literally exactly Nathan Fillion's <laughs> character, except Nathan Fillion was probably contractually unavailable. Yes. So they yeah. just added With like a, a lesser, yeah, like yeah. it, like like MMO mobs. Like you know, you've <laughs> been attacked by like a w- one lesser Nathan, one lesser Fillion, and like a dire Fillion. Like it's. And that's what happens when you, and this is almost like a counterintuitive thing. That's mm. what happens when you actually put the story in the game uh, yeah. rather than in an attached book told on the back of trading cards, <laughs> which we didn't think it at the time, <laughs> but mad. that's a better system. That's so mad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, yeah I, I think it's super interesting how, like for me, Destiny 2 just did loads of the right things for me. Like they mm. made the game better for me, more exciting. The loot, uh, drip feed was much better. It's much quicker and more rewarding for the time I did play it. But then it, 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 basically changed from being this frustrating ongoing experience to being a very satisfying normal length game experience and somehow that's bad now yeah exactly. <laughs> somehow it's, that's bad for the game it went back went from being this thing that only people who really were willing to forgive everything it was doing wrong mm. really loved to being something that everybody could like and therefore no one still plays yeah. like that's still mad to me but and uh, he's kind of left with the, the community on Reddit that just seems furious all the time about everything, which also was true of Destiny 1 in Venice, but just even, you know, it's yeah, 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 God, the whole, that whole thing is just a fascinating kind of, it's a fascinating mess of expectations. Cause I have a lot of sympathy for that development team because I think mm. they have always done the brave and right thing, which is, and which I think a lot of developers do, um, in all sorts of mediums. Uh, that I think is necessary. Like I, I have huge respect for anyone in a creative field who has something popular and then reinvents it because they think it can be better. Yeah. That doesn't kind of get locked into the, the, the panda cycle, which mm. sounds a lot more fun than it is. Mm. Like the, the sort of, um, I think this is a tremendous, has been traditionally a tremendous problem with, uh, sort of business led AAA game design where there's a huge, a, a hugely imitative aspect. Like this has worked for another company. We need one of them. Please yep. do that. But also, uh, being afraid to upset your core audience in order to make something better. Like, Call of Duty's always had a relationship with this where it progresses and fits and starts. Mm. Like, back, you know, it really looks backwards at the same time as it's moving forwards, despite the fact that, you know, when it did decide to make a big, brave decision and change in modern warfare, it revolutionized its genre, mm. right? For better or worse. Like, I always have a big, I have a huge respect for, like, how Bungie handled, 
uh, Destiny 1, where it was constantly reinventing itself and constantly trying... And the reason it had to constantly reinvent itself because it had huge problems. <laughs> and then Destiny yeah. 2, which was this, again, this com- comprehensive act um, and very intelligent and self-critical or autocritical act of, like, uh, game design, where it's mm. like, how do we make the game... How to make the game that people love to make more people love it, which is a very laudable thing to want to do. And so to have it fail is almost a bit sad. It's mm. like, well, it is sad. I have a lot of sympathy for. I think Destiny in particular has expectation problems. Like, yeah, when Destiny was first announced and the big sort of rollout was that this is going to be the decade long game. It's going to, and it's going to be the thing that you're going to live with and your character's going to grow into an amazing hero that's going to continue. And aspects of that have, uh, are true, but mm. they've, they've never, managed to fulfill the hunger that the audience kind of invented in, in the you know we were told they were going to get really like i think yeah there's definitely like a, there was a massive over promise at the start of the destiny rollout that bungie have like struggled to meet just and maybe any studio in the world would struggle to meet you know what i mean mm. uh and they're still living with that yeah now the desire to give that audience kind of what it wants like now I feel like they're sort of, I mean, and the plan for this year of expansions for Destiny 2 would have been set in stone quite a long time ago. But the whole like expansion one is Osiris, a big character from the background mm. of the first game. Second expansion is uh, uh, Rasputin, a big character, a much more present character in the first game, but still a big character from the background lore for the first game. Yep. Like it does feel like it's a sort of, they're in the playing the hits stage. Mm. Like, whereas at this point in, uh, Destiny 1's life, we were kind of gearing towards, uh, the Taken King and Oryx and again, that ama- the Book of Sorrows and, and all this kind of amazing surprising stuff that yeah. kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, you know, the, there is, you know, the new baddie in, in Warmind, the new expansion is a high of God, like mm. Oryx was. But again, we kind of done that. Yeah. Yeah. Like that sense of, it, I think maybe that's the thing, like, apart from the, the big golden face that showed up <laughs> in its bizarre, show me what you got raid boss <laughs> moment, um, it has lacked surprises, mm. I think. And that's a tough sequel yeah. problem. I, I think that's a big, a big difficult second album issue. Yeah. The, um, the main campaign for Destiny 2 did massive things, has massive implications to the ongoing plot, but it feels like that's not really going to be capitalized on until Destiny 3. Catch you at Expansion 2, Destiny 3. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it, that teased new forces in the, in the universe, you know, and it, it, not to give away any specifics, but you kind of just know from the release patterns that you're just not going to see that for years. Like, and they do, they occasionally get it right. Like the, the new trials, which ends with you going to a place with another giant face in it, mm. where there's oh, just yeah. a big horse. <laughs> right. It's just a big space horse. What's in a big pool of water at the bottom of space. You go in a wormhole, you climb a big tower, yeah. you beat a lot of people at PvP, you see a big face, and there's and a the horse. horse as well. And there's a horse there. Interesting. Like, I want to know what, what, what that, that is, is about. Show me a horse and I'm I'm back into the, the cryptic destiny. Exactly. Like, law world, the law space. I would rather have that than, and yeah, and then fucking cut to... Destiny 3 Expansion 2, where that horse is played by Nathan Fillion and is giving you missions. And you're giving him tokens, yeah. he's giving you hats. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Thank you, Law Horse. <laughs> Thank you for the hats. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, I don't know, that was quite a tangent, wasn't it? But we managed to Red Dead Redemption 2. <laughs> yeah, Red, yeah, we got from Red Dead to Destiny via Tomb Raider and some other things. Um, but you've actually played New Tomb Raider. Like, I have played haven't? New Tomb Raider. I played, I played about 45 minutes of it. And, uh, it was a fairly contextless demo. Um, what's it called, the new one? Shadow of the Tomb Raider. So she's 
risen now. She's risen and now casting a shadow. shadow. Yes. What was the first one called? She's called Tomb, Tomb Raider, wasn't it? So she's a Tomb Raider there. Uh, now she's she's risen. Now it's the shadow. Now it's Shadow the Tomb Raider. Yeah. And the, so the, the the deal with the third game in this reboot kind of trilogy is what if tomb raiding, but you've tomb raided a tomb too far, a tomb um, too far, and you've too much of a good thing, <laughs> too much of a good thing. Uh, yeah, then the inevitable strap in a piece of game. I think I wrote was like tomb fast, tomb furious. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, in the, this feels like a, a section that's very, very close to the start of the game. And, and all of the reboots open with an extremely linear and, for me, like, bad, uh, kind of opening hour where they send you down some tight corridors and Lara sort of almost falls off things. And, you know. So I didn't play Rise of the Tomb Raider. Uh, but okay. I assumed that by the end of that game she'd stopped falling off stuff all the fucking time. Yeah, so they, they sort of tone that down a little bit, but the intro is still, like, really linear and, and it's really bad. But Rise of the Tomb Raider is, like it, it's not a bad game. It's pretty good. Um, it's a lot better than the first one. And the series has dropped the weird kind of torch porn aspect of the first good reboot. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's gone. Um, but so so Lara's like a she's into the tomb raiding thing now. She's she's good with that. She's good at it. And then you raid a tomb about twenty minutes into this demo, and it's like a platform platforming puzzle, and you're going up to like a, a Mayan temple that's underground. And then um, she turns some stuff on a a, a dice dice, and it unlocks and there's like a knife there and she's like oh should i take the knife and i was like why are you even hesitating <laughs> your whole deal actually nah <laughs> is to go into tombs <laughs> and then take the thing and then leave the tomb as it probably collapses uh and no but she says she's like well maybe i shouldn't take the <laughs> credit <Get> this far <laughs> i was like yeah i just spent fucking 10 minutes jumping from one bell to another <laughs> as they bonged and went up and down on a big rope pulley system i've gotten this far and uh, it would have been hilarious if she just walked away and be like actually yeah, I fancy that one. This isn't, I don't really like that knife. It's not I'll just take a picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just snap it for your Instagram. Uh, so she takes it, and that triggers the end of the world. Oh, shit. Bad news. That knife was stopping the end of the world from happening. But, <laughs> so she's she's taken, she takes the knife, and there's like a big rumbling. The, the temple The world collapses. Um, Everything except the temple collapses. <laughs> she, runs, she runs out, and there's, uh, and then she has a, a chat with, uh, one of the one of the bad guys who's the, like the head of Trinity, which is an ongoing kind of villainous organization that Lara comes up against throughout the games. Uh, and he says, "What you've done here, Lara, is you've you've triggered the end of the universe. And um, we we wanted that dagger because we wanted to combine the dagger with a box that will let us change reality. What you've done is you've taken the knife and doomed us all. <laughs> and that's the plot of Shadow <laughs> of the Tomb Raider. So it's like, fix this now. <laughs> Go into the jungle and." fix it but is the answer more tomb raiding <laughs> definitely definitely is more tomb raiding <laughs> and, and uh, it seems to be like the sort of i suppose the answer isn't just i'll put it back then that's not gonna work no oh shit no she's lost she loses the, the dagger trinity takes the dagger she loses it uh she gives it uh, i think trinity take it and uh, okay uh, this is this is very early stuff this is very much like the first sort of hour of right. the whole set yeah. i think okay. uh so they yeah they want to use it on the box and do a thing and yeah so uh moments after this conversation the town she's in floods and also catches fire simultaneously uh which is how uh elemental forces work in video games like you you can't just have fire you also have to have floods at the same time and mm. it also has to sort of be raining but everything is also on fire as well like that's that's sort of how video game apocalypses work um and then there's a really 
really bad platforming sequence which is like total trial and error just uh press buttons to jump from floating bits of scenery onto other floating bits of scenery and then occasionally there'll be a bit where she stumbles and nearly falls but then you're back in control and then you press jump again and then it's fine uh and it's really like poorly signposted in terms of where you're supposed to go and it insta kills you for going in slightly the wrong direction at the wrong time it's like it's all the worst things that you could put into one of these linear jumping sequences just it's like I'd, I'd want to show it to people as like as an example of how not to do this type of thing. Jeez, this is the thing that like Call of Duty, for example, Modern Warfare did very well. Like, but like to back up a sec, this was this was the debut of the game in front of the press. Yes, right? yeah, it's the first showing of it. It's first showing of it, and there's no way that's what the rest of the game's like because the the other two Tomb Raider games are um they have those moments. They're like just little sequences that happen. Often they they start in these very linear manners, and then you go into sort of semi sort of sandboxy environments where you're yeah you're you're looting stuff you're hunting stuff you're doing a bit of combat and the combat's actually really satisfying quite fun and then you kind of craft things and it's like a survival thing but also an action game uh, and also also lots of like exploration and secrets and things to uncover but there's absolutely fucking none of that in the demo that we saw like there's no sign that it was going to open up or become anything else and you can't just assume that's going to happen right yeah exactly for all we know for all i know is journalists going to cover it that's what the game's like and they can say oh you become one with the jungle and you're going to become you're going to become the tomb raider that you were born to be i think that's one of the lines but that was the that was the first game wasn't it It, it's still it's still becoming the tomb raider you were born to which particular tomb raider is that that's um that's the one that is is raiding so many tombs she triggered the apocalypse you have to go you have to raid tombs so hard that the world ends and then you become the tomb raider that's how Tomb Raiders work. I love how all the all the kind of lingo around it. Yeah. It's like Tomb Raiding is actually like a, a, a profession that you can called, apply, apply for. It's called archaeology and there are rules. <laughs> there are rules. Don't steal the, the apocalypse knife. As tempting as <laughs> it may be. It's like... It, it, yeah. Um, this is, I think, the thing, right? This is maybe to link it back to... Oh, God, I'm having such a grumbly evening. Like, so to link it back to the Red Dead thing, like... It's the problem with sequels that are just the same story again. Because I didn't play Rise of the Tomb Raider, but I was immediately put off by the fact that it was called Rise of the Tomb Raider. Yeah. Because the, if, you know, I, I wasn't a huge fan of the first reboot, mm. but like to the extent that it has a kind of consistent metaphor, it's a lot about climbing up out of the shit, right? Yeah. The, uh, and eventually it ends with Lara, minor spoilers, on a kind of mountaintop, having triumphed, uh, having discovered that she loves holding two guns. <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> That's a big character beat at the end. She's like, what? A second gun? I don't mind if I do. I think that, if I recall, there was like a an NDA way back when that said you weren't allowed to mention. Yeah, no, that was the review NDA. I reviewed it and I reviewed Tomb Raider one the reboot yeah. for PCG, and yes, that was the um, that was one of the stipulations, stipulations? in the uh, in getting uh, advanced access to the final game was yeah. that we couldn't say that Lara she does at one guns. point figure out how to use two guns. Guess how many guns she has in Child of the Tomb Raider? Uh, half of one. She has one. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like um also known as a bow um the, like yeah man it's like you could have called the first game rise of the tomb raider mm. very easily you probably could have even called it shadow of the tomb raider yeah or whatever this one's called fall of the tomb raider shadow of the tomb raider shadow of the tomb raider it's sort of a fall though yeah indeed that's yeah crazy. yeah exactly well they're, they're all fall of the tomb yes, raider that's true. fall off like yeah fall, fall off a log of the tomb raider um like uh i find it i find it very frustrating I, i'd like them to find i don't know maybe i'm again you've played it i haven't and again it's like the two first part of the game but mm, like can you make a game called tomb raider where tomb raiding is secretly real bad (laughs) 
It's a real bad idea. <laughs> like, don't, don't stop it. Yeah, exactly. These tombs collapse. I mean, you're right. These tombs collapse every time someone removes That's right. the artifact from the middle of them. Y- yes. Like, that is a, that is a load-bearing chalice. You've, uh, like, w- when you raid a tomb, the tomb dies. And like, admittedly, that, that is, that is Indiana Jones logic. That yes. is, that is all the way back to like, the only thing keeping this stuff from not going to shit is this pressure plate this pressure plate or this cup or whatever this mm. orb and that is i i, I get like i understand the pressure to escalate and i quite like the idea that like this was a load-bearing dagger and the thing it was holding up was the universe, universe. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like that's like he rolled snake eyes on that like that, that critical like, yeah that critical the critical frame. fail on that yeah one. yes yeah like that's sure it's a I'm direction. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> There's a story to go. What I struggle with is how they get to the end of that story yeah. and they get to another moment where Lara's standing on a hill. She's got two guns now because that's a good idea. And she's like, you know what? I'm a Tomb Raider. Particularly because I have some issues with the fact that the first game was very much like, um, you can be the croft your father was, Lara. Yeah. But- and then that's sort of the re- repeated refrain is like, be the croft you were intended to be. Be the croft you used to be before we rebooted you and it was sad. <laughs> I don't think this game is going to get to that point. I don't think we're going to get to the point where you're riding speedboats around Venice, jumping over buildings, uh, yeah. the canals, which is too many to do. Do you think that the only logical endpoint for this series, and it could be really interesting, is she's like, actually, this is a fucking shit idea. Mm. I'm going to go train as an archaeologist. I'm going to preserve put down my destroy. boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not going to murder any more people with a climbing pick. She, um, she brutally murders people with a knife now. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's character development for, for Lara Croft between the sequels. Uh, she, she, she's <laughs> so just does not give a shit about murdering dudes. It's <laughs> <Which is laughs> always been the case in Venice. Like she, you got yeah, down yeah, like yeah. 20 dudes in the first sort of few minutes of uh, Tomb Raider 1, like kill some tigers and stuff as well. well I, I mean, like, uh, reboot Tomb Raider has that kind of strange moment from mm. like, I'm so sorry, innocent dear, like <laughs> right, 20 yeah. minutes later. And it's like, like 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Setting them on fire. And, and to be fair, screaming. I get it. Yeah. Like, you know, fuck those guys. Yeah. Some of them have big shields and you have to shoot them in the back. And that's frustrating. <laughs> that deer did nothing wrong. It's true. But, 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 yeah. <laughs> There's a bit in this, uh, in the shadow of the Tomb Raider towards the start. It's not the demo and you're at a party and you're, it's this basically like you just look around and you, you look past all the kind of the, it look, it's very pretty it's very like it's a beautiful game yeah um th- these games like all the games have been gorgeous really uh but you can see the kind of path through the party like the wiggly line you know you're gonna have to walk through to actually get out the other end of the party <laughs> and um so uh you just sort of walk along it and then occasionally she kind of squeezes between people and it's almost exactly the same animation she uses for squeezing through rocks <laughs> in like a, a in like she's a, always tomb raiding she's always tomb raiding even in social she can't stop tomb raiding even <laughs> when she's at a party she's gonna like just tomb raid past people over people that's it she can't get is away is there like so presumably that's like some sort of like flashback, flash forward type vignette. I imagine you don't know a lot of craft at a party for ages. No, she's just in a party. She's tracking someone and uh, there's a quite a tedious bit where she has to, she does this sort of snaky route through the party and then you get into a cutscene where they overhear, eavesdrop on some bad guys and then uh, you hop over a fence and then there's another completely linear corridor bit where uh, you're walking around and you're not doing anything at all. Uh, but after a few minutes, you'll again eavesdrop on another bad guy bit. And it's, it's 
it's really poor like it's really boring <laughs> it's really boring and you're supposed to be the kind of this kick-ass explorer and you know a, a, indeed a raider of tombs that and it, you know it's mm. exciting and you, you just kind of and it's just i don't think this is representative of what the game's going to be yeah it's super I interesting i don't think it's representative yeah it feels like a weak debut because it's also interesting that they're getting like because the thing i liked about old tomb raider and it, obviously tomb raider, old tomb raider had huge problems in terms of like now it looked and what it was about and stuff but it had this sort of like She's basically James Bond. Yeah. Like yeah. this sort of international woman of mystery thing. She's, yeah. So she can, you can do the party spy mission, hmm. right? Like, and, and that usually turns into like a rooftop chase or something like that. Like I'm okay with that as a structure. I'd be okay with moving in that direction, hmm. but it's the sort of, um, it's that weird need to prevent her from ever having any fun <laughs> and therefore from you ever really kind of like enjoying being her. Like I know we've joked about it, but like, it's always a bad idea to raid a tomb. It's kind of like the undermining, underlying theme of the new ones. Which right, is, right. Like, this is a terrible thing you're doing. Why are you doing this? So, in the, um, uh, Laura is a bit different in this one. She is more of like an adventurer and she's more kind of proactive and mm. less of a, just a victim of circumstance, which she totally is in the first game. That's, you know, one of the things that, again, that's, that's a journey that happens in the first game. She goes from being a victim of circumstances to someone who's actually a huge murderer. <laughs> huge. <laughs> she really takes control of her own destiny and and the destiny of many other <laughs> innocent goons. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So that, that, I mean, that is the story that game's trying to tell. And this one is like, okay, she's she's kind of really into this tomb raiding now, but but her cockiness and she's overreached and she's 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 done too many tombs. And uh, and what if the guilt of that now? <laughs> um, it's, it's so hard to talk about so, because this is all they've given us. Like, yeah. That's all that, all that we've got mm. to talk about is this. And I'm sure there's probably like a big, massive, beautifully rendered open world jungle out there that, you know, you eventually get to explore and, and you know, cool stuff to kill. Mm. It's cool mm. tombs to raid. Mm. Yeah, it's been a very kind of like lingering questions about AAA kind of mm. discussion, I guess. But yeah, like, that's the same thing. Because this stuff can totally work. Like that kind of linear intro completely worked for me with Horizon Zero Dawn, True. for example, which yeah. I really liked. Um, and, uh, I know that you've been playing God of War, I presume oh, yes. this is a PC podcast, but like that presumably gets this sort of thing right. Oh yeah. Right. What good. is it? Like, why, why does it not work for, for some games and works for others? Like this kind of like roller coaster intro, right? Mm. Which is what I guess we've been talking about in a few different contexts. I think a lot of it is just game. Some games are better at tricking you than others. They're, they're better at doing the kind of smoke and mirrors, making you feel as though you're not on a corridor even though you are and even though the part of you knows you're in you're just walking down a straight line that there's enough spectacle and stuff going on that's interesting mm. to actually distract you and the problem with the two major um was that you're walking around a slow party the bad guys are really boring and it's kind of like a genero indiana jones you know enemy not the nazis obviously but <laughs> like uh and a kind of t- trad adventure enemies who just yeah just talking nonsense no one's saying anything interesting whereas you know with um modern warfare you're going like at the time it was spectacular like, it was, even the smoke trails and missiles flying over your head jet planes going over it was constantly distracting and actually like a, a huge kind of overload sensory overload and it's, it was almost like you couldn't give the player anything too complicated to do to do in that moment because the player is going to be focusing on all this kind of madness that's happening around them mm. and so I, I think it's just an execution thing i think it can work if, if you've you know if it's really well paced and there's actually interesting things happening it's just it's partly just writing and spectacle and stuff mm. that fails i wonder if part of it for me when it works for me in this kind of game it's often because it's also like and obviously tutorials can be heavy-handed sometimes but it's also because partly like it's 
teasing the game to come. Mm. I think this is something that Horizon does very successfully. Right. Which is every one of its vignettes at the start, particularly when you're young Aloy, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Are all like these are mechanics you're going to use it's and like an apply? Right? Like yeah. it, we're going to teach you, we're going to give you the sense of some of the ways in which the combat system, which is quite freeform for a game like that, mm. kind of fits together. We're going to show you just the basic verbs, and we're going to get you kind of excited for what comes next, and we'll give you more and more and more and more freedom until you're just playing the game. And I think I think uh, Horizon suffers a bit because the moment where it opens up the open world is so overwhelming. Yes, um, that it's almost like I quite enjoyed the ten hour linear game I was playing, and mm. now I have to deal with all this shit um but that's like to quote a marketing person a good problem to have yeah like i enjoyed that ride because the moments where it sort of ups the difficulty a bit and asks you to do something you kind of want to do it and it's consistent with the vocabulary you've been taught yeah i feel like uh, i haven't played god of war i'd like to like um my issue with uh Tomb Raider reboot uh was that it has some of that spectacle. Like, there's a lot going on. There's like, but none of the things it's really teaching you are actually going to be that applicable. Mm. Like, it almost pretends to be a survival game for like this very E3 friendly 15 minutes. And then it's a cover shooter. Yeah. And it's an all right cover shooter. Yeah. Yeah. But it's almost like, uh, I think that's when I feel, cause I don't want this to simply be moaning. Like, I, I want to sort of try and identify like, what is it about these kinds of experiences that can be so unsatisfactory? Mm. And I think for me, it's when the, the spectacle is exposed to be simply spectacle, not to be in service of sort of teach uh, using linearity to teach me how this game is going to work. Um, but actually just there to kind of try and trick me into feeling a particular thing that is not actually that relevant. Yeah. Like it's when the, the meat of the game turns out to be completely at odds with what you, the intro sequence, right? Yeah. You know, compare that to, you know, modern warfare one, which is obviously so fundamental, you know, we return to it again, but mm. like so fundamental to games like this, you have the training mission where, uh, quite cleverly you do, uh, their version of the first mission. Cause that's what they're practicing for mm. in a kind of training scenario, which is fully interactive and teaches you how guns work and you can retry it as many times as you want. And it's quite, for a game famous, and I've just already talked about it in this way for, for, uh, imposing this kind of aggressive linearity on action game design. It's actually quite, uh, free with its mechanics at the start it lets you kind of practice them as much as you want until you feel that you're quite good at yeah. throwing flashbangs through doors and things mm. kind of somewhat portraying the fact that subsequently you'll never get to open a door by yourself ever again <laughs> but it does start with that and then it starts with a combat mission yeah uh where again heavily linear in some ways but you do your shooting yourself you learn how the guns work you, you play you know you play the game that it's going to be for the rest of the game yeah it gives you new toys as well it gives you the the homing uh tank buster missiles that again we're just a, is that the first mission where you're mm, it's the ship is the first mission oh okay yeah um oh yeah of course yeah like um That's a good mission. it is a good mission um and then you get the very then you get it then it's at that point that you get its uh opening credits and it's mm. kind of a uh, showy linear thing, which is when you're the kind of uh, kidnapped president being driven by car yeah. to your execution, mm. um, which is uh, a showcase in look how many little Half-Life style scripted sequences we can pack into one car journey. That man's hiding in a bin. Some jets went past. Wow. Like, but it doesn't open with that. And I think that's the crucial thing. Like it opens yeah. with here's the game. And I wonder if that's because it was, you know, among first of its kind. And that's kind of like a, almost uh like it opens with an, an assumption that you must show the game and then you get to do the flashy mm. cinematic stuff and that feels like that assumption is somewhat like yeah not quite 
that's a good assumption actually and it, it should be sort of entertained more also um call of duty has incredibly strong fundamentals when it comes to actually firing guns and stuff like yeah. that so when you actually do get to do that it feels amazing and it's just instantly fun like it's, it just feels great they're mm. they're sort of submachine guns they're sort of rattly uh crosshair the red dot sight mp5 dot experience sight. which is literally the first uh, bit yeah. of call of duty it's modern warfare so sound yeah and that is the that's the like mp5 that launched a thousand imitations right like <laughs> yeah yeah totally yeah and it's really like the fundamentals are super super good and this applies to god of war as well so uh not to spoil anything but like you're just wandering around a little bit and it's doing some sort of scene setting and sort of uh you've got your son and there's some story it's trying to set up but you get into a fight fairly quickly and my goodness like the just the fundamentals of how it feels to hit a thing with an axe in the game to throw an axe and recall it back into your hand is just immediately incredible and you was like oh, i want to do this for 40 hours now yeah uh, and it, it feels like the game has to give you that taste or and it, or it at least has to have some substance to it like some interactive substance to it and what happened with tomb raider shadow of the tomb raider was that there was lots of like party bit and you'd go through the linear sort of storytelling bit and then um the first sort of real interaction you do is is the tomb is is that tomb that she ends up stealing the apocalypse dagger from and it's very nice nice sort of platforming bit i suppose but it's nothing you haven't experienced in any other game like it's just jumping from one thing to another thing and then looking around and you know jumping to the next bit and they're all obviously ever since on you know uh uncharted uh all games like use color coding for what led to slightly chalky ledge yes exactly and it's almost drawn yellow all over this bit and you know that that kind of thing um and it doesn't feel amazing like it still feels like a little bit i think part of it was it's a very awkward way to be introduced to a game at an event in a place in london where there is some input lag because they're using a enormous screen and you're sat three feet away from it like it's just it's weird how so much money and kind of time is spent introducing people to a game in the, the worst possible environment and the yeah. environment that you're never going to end up playing it in as well like it looks really fast flashy and stuff that you could do the venue up in lots of you know two major things they put lara croft in a rotating uh, section of jungle they built but <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah that was just what you see when you walk in and then you you, you go upstairs and it's like you, you eventually find a bit where the hands-on's happening and um it's, you'd never play a game like that ever <laughs> it's just so strange the whole thing was really the game's really industry's obsession with putting people in a really dark room full of camo netting yes yeah absolutely it's the game traditional games industry event and uh yeah but still the the platform didn't feel amazing and it's like there was a little bit of combat a tiny bit of combat but really towards the end of the demo and it's like two sort of sections of it and it's exactly the same as the last two games and they were fine it's not the God of War thing of like, oh my God, this feels amazing. I can't wait to do this. And it's not the Call of Duty thing of this is like, frankly, some of the most satisfying machine gun shooting, you know, it's still amazing. Like the, the, the Call of Duty kind of guns are the, the sort of feeling of lethality you get from them and the kind of snap up and the quick kill you get from them mm. is like, they're super, super good. Uh, that infinite, infinity Ward's kind of skill in creating that. Uh, and if you don't have that, it does feel like the rest is kind of treading water. All of this sort of narrative stuff that they're trying to impose is always trying to cover over the fact that the core of the game perhaps isn't that shiny, you know? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's a shame. But... But, but again, the rest of the game could be incredible. Mm, yeah, It could yeah, be a completely yeah, yeah. different game. I, I, find it, I find it nice to check in with AAA, actually, because it feels like, mm. you know, we said this at the start, but like, it feels like so much is overtaken in terms of people's mind share, like how much people really attach to mm. these kinds of games. 
So when they are like execute, like I, I think Sony's in-house studios are on it, or like uh, Sony's sort of first-party stuff is on a bit of a roll. Yeah, for sure. To be honest, like it is still possible to do these experiences to a really high degree of quality. Mm. But the, I think maybe you know it's been ten years. Like I think we're at a point where increasingly high fidelity versions of Xbox 360 staple designs <laughs> isn't really cutting it now. Maybe not, but um, people are still buying, buying Call of Duty. Battlefield's still selling. True, true, true. But, you know, they're not the only game in town, right? Yeah, I, I love... And they are now chasing. I do love AAA. Like, I, I, I really love just a massive studio full of really talented artists like yeah because they they do get incredible like bungie has incredible artists um santa monica for sony have incredible artists god of war is just astonishingly beautiful like it's um not to talk about it too much because obviously it's not a pc game but it's it's what if you put all of the budget and the talent and the time that AAA can afford to do and that often these days gets spent on an open world game what if you put it into something that isn't open world it's not a corridor at all there's actually like a lot of kind of spindly side stuff you could do in god of war but imagine if you put all of that into smaller spaces and more concentrated experience and the result is spectacular like it's spectacular that sounds great uh and and i love a triple a for that i think like it's still uh, feels like such a blockbuster fucking cool premium experience that i would uh, happily pay 60 pounds for every year you know yeah yeah totally yeah i get that like i think this is the thing that frustrates me when they're when all of that effort is expended because the games industry is, if nothing else, like such a collective effort mm. to create these things and so much very high, uh, technical and artistic talent goes into creating even bad games of that production mm. value. And often that stuff is not at fault. It's like there's a, a design malaise or a writing malaise or something or a creative kind of ennui at some level far, far beyond and more general than how's your environment art how's your mm. you know uh you know, concepting that kind of thing and obviously it has an effect on what gets made but like you almost want to save the it's, it's really it's it's a difficult thing to kind of want to praise and protect and uh lord environment artists and you know the the kind of engine developers and people who kind of make it just fucking work at all yeah um when experiences can be so lackluster as a consequence of decisions that happen at a much higher level. Hmm. That's the kind of stuff frustrating truth of the game. I suppose it's true for movies as well at the moment as well. Like, Mm. you know, there's there's so much, again, technical skill that goes into ultimately lackluster kind of stuff. Yeah. I I think that what I really enjoy particularly about um, God of War and games like that and also Call of Duty and, is that there's loads of effort that goes into designing the feel of the game that is invisible to you. Yeah. In a way that I feel that with films, like there's certainly loads of skill and technique that goes into cinematography, but you know, you'd be like, Oh, that's too short. That's one shot. Whereas it feels like there's so much like hidden away when you play mm. games that there's loads of, so for just the way screen shake happens in God of War, for example, like it's different for every attack and it's different for different types of attack. And I'm sure there's a very subtle dynamic difficulty adjustment thing going on in that game. Even though you get to select your difficulty level, uh, I'm sure that I've detected like bosses 
being softer in their attack patterns if you died a couple of times then that kind of stuff just really subtle just easing you in through the experience stuff that is just really kind of behind the scenes expertise and talent that uh, is i find kind of weirdly inspiring about yeah. these games um and especially because like they're often um i mean I, I, you see people sometimes write off triple a games it's been like oh it's just a big dumb punching game right so mm. much fucking skill goes into making a good punching game <laughs> yeah so it's incredibly hard to do uh, so much skill goes into making a good shooting game making a gun feel good that's so hard to do like because i've played fucking junior can forever <laughs> a couple of weeks ago for a, a pc gamer now playing and when it goes wrong you just don't realize how bad it can get like, yeah. you know what i mean like it doesn't it, when that talent isn't there what's well, not talent necessarily different years different conditions effectiveness when, like when that effectiveness isn't there when the execution isn't there it's astonishing how much you just lose and how boring it is immediately. And the fact that, you know, the reason why Call of Duty has been so successful is because those fundamentals have been excellent. And the reason why God of War is great is because those fundamentals are fucking sharp and feel great every time you hit. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. Uh, and and that, that's, that's what I love about. I mean, we get this from Hellblade as well, though. Like Hellblade mm. is. I was going to mention Hellblade. Though, wicked, just, yeah. yeah. Again, that's just uh, obviously a lot of that expertise is in the Hellblade team because mm. slashing stuff with that sword feels great, but it's a really fun combat system. Feels yeah. Really and good. it's appropriately like, this is the most boring thing in the world to say about Hellblade the game, which is amazing, but like it's appropriately scoped mm. so that they can deliver that consistently over the yeah. course of an experience that is not trying to be all things to all people. Like it doesn't have like no one at any point leaned over it and said, we need to be able to hook an open world into this or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Like, yeah. It is. Um, yeah. I mean, I appreciate it, like on this, because we talk about PC games, we tend to not, uh, maybe with the exception of things like Far Cry, have to wander too much into the weeds of what AAA is doing at any given time. Because mm. there's often, the most interesting design is often not happening there. But you're right, that the execution is so vital. Mm. And it's so often led astray by whatever factor that the people making it can't factor in. That it's like, yeah, it's like, I'm fascinated by it. But at the same time, it's sort of only every now and then that something comes along that kind of makes me really... Like, I feel like I have such guards up against getting excited about it now. Right. Like to go back yeah. to what we were talking about right at the beginning of this episode, like I have, those guards are still fully up about Red Dead. Like mm. I really want to be shown the thing that makes me go, oh shit, mm. you know? Shall we do some questions from the internet? We have some questions from both internet and email. Mm. Those are two kinds. The smaller internet. Yeah. The little uh, the internet that's delivered by a little mini postman. Zed Fang writes, Important question. What would be the effect on a guard if they were exposed simultaneously to the hurry up dog and the standstill dog? Oh, I like this one. I think you'd get the, uh, the kind of flappy dog crisis that I often experience when right. I was a dog. Mm. Like the kind of like, ooh, ah, like that's my, that's, uh, me would as you, Jeff Goldblum. Would you remain frozen in place though uh, during the freak out process? I'd be extremely animated, but I wouldn't move. But that's the, that's that what I sense? think would happen. That's what I think would happen. I think you, you would ultimately remain still, but a small dog would attack your legs. Uh, it would be a sort of like you wouldn't move in a way that would necessarily inconvenience a, a stealth character. Like you, you no. would, you'd be moving a lot, but it would, you would let your feet wouldn't move. You'd you'd be basically stationary. Yeah. You'd be sort of rotating your torso in a kind of like how can I fuss this dog in the most you know like you know, adorable way. It'd yeah. be adorable. It would be good. It would be like a good death. It would be a good death because you you wouldn't be able to move or eat or sleep or do any of the things that humans traditionally require need to do to stay alive. Uh, and there is a small dog trying to menace you, which is obviously adorable. But is, is, still it, is it a men- yes, yeah. When you're being menaced by a puppy, it's like one of the best. It's things, very right? small thing. Yeah, like, very it small wants thing. to fight me. A yappy dog. Yeah, but um, but it can't because it's little. That's right. So That's it's going to be best. nipping yeah. at your ankles. Your ankles are going to get mildly nipped, and then you'll die of starvation. 
Oh, we could all dream, can't we? I mean, it's the best death, isn't it? Yeah. Incredible. Let's do that. Deal. (laughs) (laughs) Suicide packs in there. (laughs) Uh, That's what happens when we have to do podcasts by ourselves. we do podcasts by ourselves all the time, Tom. I don't know why this is particularly suicide packy this week. But anyway, I, don't know. I mean, it's, it's it, been a gloomy it, it's week. It's the puppy, that, though, isn't That's it? True. It's really That's more true. than anything else. That's what it is. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, um, you know, the question was actually that it's too, maybe to unpack it slightly further, not that it necessarily needs it, but it does, and I'm doing it. Mm. Um, it wasn't one dog, it was both the hurry up dog and, and the, the, the standstill dog. The so there are two dogs, yeah. one of which is trying to usher you somewhere, the other one would like you to fuss it here and now what is this a difference does this does this moderate that situation somewhat well so basically the 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 delightful adorable chocolate labrador is there giving you the puppy dog eyes and then you've you've stopped to look at that that's the the dog holding you in place yes the the other dog is a small dog maybe like a little poodle maybe like a little beagle something little like a westie like a little westie and it's yapping it's yapping it's going it's going it's angry and it's it's going at your heels it's trying to get you somewhere and which dog is more charismatic in that scenario? Is it the quiet, beautiful, soft dog you want to stroke? Or is it the insistent, annoying, yappy dog you want to kick into the sun? Mm, I think... Do the dogs have a relationship with one another at all? Is there a sort of... I think they're completely oblivious to one another. Oh, okay, that changes things. Yes, I think so as well. Like, it's not like they're going to form friendships and then walk off into the sun, freeing you to go back or, your or, or simply, your life. like, one neutralises the other. Okay, I see. Okay. Like, okay. Like so, what? yes, okay, so one neutralises the other, and what, do they just meet in a halfway point where they're sort of similarly kind of... So I, I find that, like, it depends on the relative size of the dogs, because that is how dogs decide things. I see, I, I see the... The one that the transfixing one is being the larger dog. I agree. And strokeable. I remember when I, uh, I had to tell a dog story because God knows we talked about video games for an hour. That's enough. That's too much. So when, uh, so when, uh, my parents' dog, but I, I, when, when, when they got him, I was, I was still living with them after uni. Uh, uh when he was little, mm. we used to walk him up and he was not necessarily a yappy dog, but he was very much a kind of, I want to be friends with everybody in this, in this hill good kind dog. of dog. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and he would be, he's very gregarious, very outgoing, mm. but there was a big, um, very calm, very chilled out, not particularly old, but, but pretty like mellow St. Bernard. Nice. Um, that would just sort of, um, hang out. And, uh, my parents' dog, uh, Moses would, would, would scoot around him, not barking, but in a kind of like, we're doing stuff. He's the hurry up dog, right? Yep. We're doing stuff. We're doing stuff. And, uh, the St. Bernard, uh, wh- whose name was Columbo. Which is a very good name. Excellent name for a Saint Bernard. Um, would just very slowly lift a paw and then just put it down on crush Moses <laughs> and not crush him because he's too fluffy, but like just mm. smush him into the ground. <laughs> and Moses would accept this immediately, like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> I'm still now." Yeah, and one good. brilliant time, uh, Columbo just sat on him, fully sat on him, like went over him because mm. he's much bigger than him, and just went like, "Boop!" And I just remember watching like Moses like wiggle out from underneath, but now like completely flat. And, and I think that I agree with you. I think the stace, I think the, the, the standstill dog would neutralize the hurry up dog in that way as mm-hmm. long as whichever one's bigger, basically. Yeah. If the hurry up dog is significantly larger than the, the cute transfixing dog, what you have there is like a police attack dog that's coming after you. And it, it's not like, so the, we originally proposed this as being as like an annoying annoyance factor that ushers mm. you around a route quick, more quickly than you might otherwise just walk around it. Um, whereas if we, if we switch, if we switch the sizes here, what you've got is a very angry dog 
trying to kill you and then a, a very small cute dog and at that point you're right it changes everything you're gonna start I think, running i think in that scenario yeah you're right you pick up the small dog and then you, and run. you run yes which is a situation i've always also been in so <laughs> <laughs> like um that's yeah you're right it, it basically yes whichever dog's larger is what would happen yes. yeah that could be an interesting game mechanic could it probably not you've got a shrink ray <laughs> that's yeah okay fine that's the that's the game like managing one the relative of sizes of different dogs shrink one or the other to move somewhere yeah that's it it's get like, at it alan hazel good, as good as portal <laughs> uh our next question is also about which thing is bigger and is that okay okay this is from uh leonardo who writes chris uh, do you think Battletech should have tonnage limits or something to prevent late game assault spam? What is your thought on campaign progression? Cheers. So have you played Battletech to the end? No, I've not seen the assault mechs. The, the giant, ginormo ones. So, um, by the time you finish the campaign, this is not a spoiler, mm. you'll have a handful of them, but you won't have all of them. Right. I think it, I think you probably have to play for a little while after the end of the campaign, unless you spend some time doing extracurricular activities mm. before you have enough assault mechs that you never have to run anything other than an assault mech. Okay. But he's definitely right that when you can do that, you're probably better off doing that. Mm, and that is better. sort of partly an issue. If they're better, like the thing that should hold you back is that they are more expensive to repair. Mm. Um, so you take damage or heaven forbid, like lose most of one. That's pricey. However, they're earning you a lot of money at the same time when yeah. things are going well. So I would agree that it's not necessarily the best balanced part of Battletech's endgame. Um, you know, you do get to a point where you're pretty powerful. Mm. However, for me, that didn't kick in till at least 50 hours into the campaign. Well, yeah. And I was kind of happy with that. Like, that was kind of my reward. It's like, I can drop anywhere now. And like, because the way that when the, when the game is set, it's set in a time when those mechs are actually really rare. And your reward for embarking on this kind of war and, and winning this war and, you know, all that stuff is that you have access to these sort of like Star League era mechs that are super powerful. Right. And like taking, uh, taking casualties and stuff does really hurt. I do think it would be interesting to have, um, more missions that encourage you to make interesting decisions. I'm not sure if a tonnage limit is necessarily the thing. Mm. Um, but there's like, so, for example, towards the end of the campaign, this is not a spoiler, but, uh, well, maybe it's a mechanical spoiler, but, um, there are missions that, uh, it maybe underuses this idea where, like, you're gonna have to do two missions back to back on the same day. And because any kind of repairs takes days or weeks. Right. Anything, any damage you incur in one mission, you're either gonna have to handle in the next mission, or run a different lance. Mm. And by that point, you almost certainly don't have enough assault mechs to use them all, all the time. So I did a mission. I did that in a way that meant that I didn't run some of my assault mechs in the first mission. I ran just enough that I thought I could get away with actually underbid it slightly and worked very hard to succeed. Uh, and it turned out that my assault mech I did commit to the first mission actually came out of it mostly okay. So mm. I could use them in the second one. And then the second one was a little bit easier because my other assault mechs were completely untouched. Yeah. And that's an interesting idea. I think I prefer yeah, that to a tiny image. Yeah. Um, and I quite, I enjoyed those missions. But yeah, I, I, I agree in principle that like Battletech has a problem with like its end games a little bit easier when you get to that point. Mm. But what's interesting about it is like XCOM just ends. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like there's a final mission. That's it. Battletech doesn't end. And so obviously you're just going to get powerful until the point where... Well, yeah, yeah. 
and, and I'd kind of rather have the freedom to play with all the cool to- toys and what, like, that's a good aspirational thing to have, right? A, a, a lance that's full of assault mechs that are yeah, and that, that takes a while to be. do as well, because like, you know, you get a bunch of stuff over the course of the single player, mm. but anything else, you're going to have to salvage. So that means going and finding missions and doing missions to get the good mechs. So by the time you've got like a garage full of assault mechs, I feel that you've kind of beaten the game at that point. Yeah. Like you have the legendary Pokemon. Mm. There aren't, there aren't, there's not no incentive to go back to using a Pidgey when you have all of the legendary Pokemon. Yeah, this this doesn't sound broken to me. This sounds like good end game incentivization, like for around building mm. the squad you want to build beyond the story. And of course, like, uh, it's not a tonnage limit, it's a C-Bills money limit, but yeah. that is how multiplayer and skirmishes are balanced. Okay. So if you want to play a game, like, this is what I would say, like, if you want, and I, I, I really, really do like Battletech, because I only won my games of the year so far, like, if you want to play a game that encourages you to run different kinds of mechs, that's what skirmish is for. Sure. Right, late game campaign is mm. is for stomping. Look at my hundred ton mech. Stomp, stomp. I mean, stomp, admittedly, stomp. like it's kind of a thing where technically their weakness is that they get, if they get take serious damage, then you're in trouble. They cost lots of repair, yeah. but they kill things so quickly that they're right. actually less likely to take serious damage than less effective mech. So it's a bit of a kind of mm. false trade off, mm. and that's maybe a bit of a weakness. But mm, the game's done by then, really. Yeah, and you've earned it, right? You've yeah. earned the very, very big boy. Mm. Four Good for you. Four of them. Um, our next question. Sorry, I've got to switch over to questions from emails, not questions from internet. Uh, our next question comes from Nathan, who writes, Hi all. Stellaris, the very good 4X strategy game from Paradox, recently brought out a patch massively changing the core mechanics of the game, to the extent that it feels like a very different game to the pre-patch version. To people who didn't like the changes, they pointed out that you can play older versions through Steam, provided you don't want to use any future expansion packs. This has caused internet rage, of course. This is a mostly single-player game, and many fans resent having their game changed under their feet. On the other hand, Paradox have every right to do whatever they like to their own game. I'm not sure what I think. What do you think? What other arguments can you foresee as games as service explores, expands, and exploits and exterminates <laughs> single-player games? Lots of love. Nathan. Hmm. 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 Paradox have a bit of a history of continually reinventing their games as they go along, right? Indeed, yeah. They do. I, I, I haven't played New Stellaris though, so I don't know what. No, I'm not, I don't, I'm not familiar at all with the changes that have been made to the game, but I like the idea of rollbacks. Minecraft famously has lots of rollback. You can rollback mm. the client loads to work with different mods and that kind of stuff. I, th- I think like surely the situation as it exists is ideal. Like you can't expect the developers to develop expansions for every single potential patch version of the game. Uh, but if you're still free to use various mechanisms to roll back to the one you want to and just live in that world, then that seems fine. Yeah. Seems fine. Like, I suppose there's a thing where, like, it's not quite games as service, because games as services, you don't have that control. Like, games as services, Destiny gets updated, you don't like it anymore. We were talking about that earlier. Yeah. Like, um, this is not that. This is just, I don't know, for, for obvious reasons, if anyone understands my tabletop proclivities, I've been thinking a lot about second editions recently. And we don't really think about, you know, a, a, a second edition of a tabletop game or a board game or a miniatures game tends to kick in when the design space of the first version has been exhausted. Hmm. And that kind of feels like that's something the paradox would probably do, right? Like yeah. if, if they can't meaningfully expand what's there, then you reinvent the base, the fundamentals. Give yourself more room. And you give yourself more room. Mm. And if you're still giving people the ability to roll back, but those new expansions are incompatible with it, then that's about as much as you can offer, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure if, uh, from the question, it's hard to tell whether that's like an official rollback thing or it's just a... a, a so people are using Steam to do it, right? So maybe there are ways of 
freezing a version somehow. Um, but it sounds doable. Like it doesn't sound like it's hassle to do it. So people who want to do that can do that. We believe this is probably fine. It's probably fine, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I said earlier that I respect developers who are willing to reinvent their otherwise successful game if they believe it'll make it better. So yeah, yeah indeed. Yeah, as long as it does make it better. I mean, if they 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 they, they boned it, then that's that's a different matter. So, yeah, that's a, we can't judge that. We haven't played it. No, indeed. Our next question comes from Russ, who writes, "Hi CNC. Uh, now that Agent Forty Seven is the new Home Secretary, <laughs> what other video game characters would you like to see occupying Britain's top political jobs?" Uh, video game characters occupying top political jobs. Interesting. Not video game characters famously pretty direct and not too good at the subterfuge and the kind of flexibility required to survive in the backstabbing also, also the, um, also the kind of, um, prevarication. Mm. Like not famous for sort of not doing stuff, but sort of. And not saying stuff. And not saying stuff and just sort of maneuvering and. Apo- like sort of apologizing without so, apologizing very like one of the stealthiest some stealthy characters but like socially stealthy it's hard, mm. to, it's hard to really pinpoint them really yeah because normally they have like a mission or something they believe in yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, age of 47 will be good at it i think yeah well i think he's, he's you know that's, that's why yeah um, uh, mm, i mean because like agent 47's whole vibe is like well i've done it once can i try it again but now only using like an exploding golf ball or whatever which is probably about as close to it and they're like yes home secretary <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah i'm trying to think like what's the can you think of a uh a video game character who sort of like represents absolutely nothing uh um, or sort of who'd get who'd be like on top of their brief who would really you know be able to incorporate lots of data very quickly and make decisions about you know uh, how to take a stance on a thing for a media appearance like, right so you're talking you know, about the kind of uh just the transparently survival. sort of un <laughs> day-to-day survival of a minister uh mm. requires that kind of ability to adapt to circumstance particularly media circumstance i don't think they, these video characters just don't have the I, was, I was trying to think to if, if there's an angle here where like guybrush streetwood's like quite a successful backbencher Oh yeah, it'd be, from yeah. a sort of insult sword fighting kind of. Yeah, yeah. Like, but again, that. not really like a position of power. You wouldn't necessarily think of him as a cabinet minister, or so much as a sort of yeah, like noisy. You, you have guy guy brush on the back bench. You'd have uh, Stan the uh, the ship dealer, probably in the cabinet. I imagine his ability to to swing a deal and sell any old shit <laughs> would be quite useful. Maybe this is this is barely relevant, but it. Uh, Genuinely happened. It can't occur to me the other day that uh, John Burkow's name just makes me think of the Tauren from World of Warcraft. They're very much both bears and cows. Yeah, Um, that's different. Not really what the question was. It's a thing. It's a a connection. Um, Uh, Let's think. Characters good at politics. It is hard. It is hard because, I mean, beyond the actual obvious political leaders that were in civilization that are in various like historical war games and things like that. It's. I mean, you're not going to put. Raz, is it Raz from Psychonauts? Mm. Not gonna put him in charge of anything, are you? So I was thinking, Sonic? I was thinking, is, is, is there a place for Rayman here? Because Rayman is sort of like vaguely appealing to me, but I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I'm not threatened by him in any way, and I don't know what he represents. Okay. So I'm just saying, like, you could vote for you Rayman. Could, you could get Rayman into a safe seat you, somewhere. You could, right? Parachute him into a safe seat, like a, which would be a platforming mini game, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And then, but he's, 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 his whole thing is punching dudes with his giant kind of white gloved hands. But he doesn't have arms or legs. Mm, that's 
true. I'm not sure why that's relevant. Political ramifications that <laughs> has for him. So you're looking for inoffensive characters then, the characters that you just forgettably just fade into that. I mean, I'm not saying this is this would this would make them suitable for power. I'm just saying it makes it likely. Right. You know what I mean? Like, don't um, have any arms or legs. That's, I, I guess I'm, I'm seeing that as a substitute for like substance. In some I, way. I see. So you <laughs> like, actually, maybe ghosts. <laughs> then any ghostly characters. The um, because like Luigi's too weird. Like he's he's but he's Luigi's basically sinister. Ed Miliband. That's the thing. <laughs> that is also true. And Mario is David Miliband. Yeah. <laughs> it's the one who You've should have been. The of this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We uh, ran uh, Luigi. Uh, yeah, we we went with Luigi. What <laughs> we should have perhaps gone with Mario. <laughs> And that's a thing that happened in our politics. So we've just got to yeah. live with that now. In this, in this analogy. Also Boris Johnson's Wario, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Does that make like Jeremy Hunt Waluigi? Ooh, maybe. Yeah. That's incredible. There we go. Yeah. Mario was the answer all along. Who's Tote? <laughs> <laughs> the speaker is Tote. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was, yeah. No, I was going to suggest Jeremy Corbyn for Toad, but that doesn't quite work. No, not quite. Toad's wearing a hat though. Uh, mm. a communist hat. <laughs> no, uh, that's that's or is very it part good. Of his head. What is it? Part? I think it's his head. Shit. No, is it his hat? It's really grotesque if it's his head. <laughs> it's a different debate. Boris Johnson is well Luigi's kind of. That's fundamental. Like, although that does suggest that he's just sort of an inverted David Miliband, which doesn't make a lot of sense. No, but, or does it? Or does it? Maybe Boris Johnson's more like... Boris Johnson's Wario. Yeah, sorry, I got... Yeah. Waluigi, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to think, like, who the most... Like, who is that... Anonymous but steady performing, meaningless video game character? Because surely it's full of them. But presumably it's we just like... Them. Too good, it's going to be like the lead character in Siphon Filter or something, right? Like... Hmm. Mm. Uh, it's uh, Michael Thornton from <gasps> Alpha Protocol. <laughs> yes, it's him. He would be very good at it. Forgettable, but erratic. Somehow at the same time. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Michael Thornton. What would his cabinet position be? Um, well, it depends whether you want to go Jack Bauer, uh, Jason Bourne, or the other one, uh, James Bond. Yeah. Uh, Again, though, that's your politics. No, I don't think he has any political position whatsoever. It's just, like, but Michael Thornton wakes up every morning and thinks, "How am I going to kick ass today?" That's his main, his deal. And that sounds like a really badly thought out, like question time answer. There you go. Like, how do you feel? How do you sleep at night? Well, every morning I get up and think about how am I going to yeah. kick ass? And, and that, yeah. That does some minor traction on Twitter and then everyone forgets about it. You might get a clap and then, yeah, yeah that's right. You've survived a new cycle. But that time Luigi ate a bacon sandwich. Fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, just sort of <laughs> photographed him at the moment. Career's over. <sighs> okay. So yeah, we've, yeah, a bit of politics on the pod there. Uh, obviously very serious consideration of the issues. Um, but I think we've, I think we've, I think we've answered that one. Um, next, John writes, dear drinking from 8am foobar. Is that an attempt to crank? I don't know. There's a mystery. To, mm. There's a mystery there to uncover. With Valve buying Campo Santo recently, the internet was inevitably rife with speculation that this injection of writing talent may eventually lead to a rather wordy rejuvenation of the Half-Life series. If you could choose a, a studio to make Half-Life 3, which would it be? And what would the end result look like? 
For me, I'd give Konami a new lease of Half-Life to jiggle rhythmically in a poorly lit VR urban metropolis where the risks of meeting my demise on the end of an improvised trap ward root the risks of encountering a headcrab in Dance Dance Raven Home Illusion. Oof. All the best. Uh, Agro. Uh, from Critcast, the Mostly Weekly Team Fortress 2 podcast. Sweet. They've done almost 460 episodes. And they're still too afraid of, still too afraid of community backlash to quit. (laughs) (laughs) What was the, what was the question? It was, um, Uh, studio you would give Half-Life 3 to. Oh. And what would it be like? It doesn't have to be serious because we were just talking about Luigi. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I don't know. I mean, Titanfall, uh, respawn, Mm. respawn. Mm. I'd Mm. want them to do Half-Life 3 really. Yeah. Um, I would give it to, the people whose name I've forgotten who made stories untold. Oh, yes. A sort of immersive sci-fi experiential adventure horror game. Mm. Just about the mystery of Half-Life and the kind of Twilight Zoniness of it rather than the running and the shooting and the jumping and yeah. the buggies. Get into the mindset of the combine. What's going on behind those masks? Yeah, what well, is? And those bleeping noises. Indeed. That would be one solution. As a shooter, though, I agree. I think Infinity Ward is a good... Oh, sorry, Respawn Entertainment <coughs> uh, is a good is a good answer. Hmm. Yeah. Or Ninja Theory. Yeah. Yeah. The crowbar combat's going to be sick yeah, in indeed. that game. Just kicking the shit out of a box. I always forget that's why we called this podcast what we did. Yes. <laughs> like a Half-Life pub. Yeah, which was literally the idea. Yeah. The idea sort of ended there. There's no more to that idea. It's just that. We never built on it. No. Sounds a bit like a pub. Um, give it to Tom Francis. Then it'd be out in three and a half years. It'd be out tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Francis probably got Half-Life 3 on his, on his hard drive right now that he's designed. He's like, this is how I would do it. And he's made it. That's my theory. You reckon? Yep. <laughs> next question comes from david who writes dear gin and tonic what is the best video game pub Ooh, auspicious somewhere you want to hang out and converse with an interesting npc rather than just walk in get a quest and leave bonus question which game has the most satisfying drunk effects cheers mm. p.s alcohol the uh the pub in Dishonored One is good. The kind of hideout pub. Mm, mm. And there are some interesting people hanging around there. The people you collect over the, the Hound Pits pub. That's the one. Yeah. That's really that's a that's a good place. That looks like a good pub. The um the pub in Everyone's Gone to the Rapture oh, yeah, is yeah. extremely realistic. Yeah. Uh except where it isn't. There's a very good PC game article by Phil Savage about this uh, yeah. man very familiar with pubs. Phil used uh, to work in pubs and uh, he analyzes every aspect of that pub, which is beautifully rendered, but also wrong in some very specific ways. <laughs> mm, it's not necessarily a place I want to hang out though. You're not going to meet, you're going to meet a Radio 4 drama <laughs> that won't talk to you. I think you're going to go, that that's the sort of place you go with your parents and a group on. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's a bit sterile. So I mean, you, that's a, that game's set in the 80s, so it's probably fine then. You get 20% off your roast, but ghosts might try and tell you about an apocalypse roasting a ghost roasted a ghost 20 percent off <laughs> exactly this sunday yeah from two um also yeah it's it's sort of it's going to be one of those places where the vegetables are both bad and served in the hottest 
like tray on earth yeah okay like you know exactly Vegetables what i mean gonna burn you yeah a nuclear tray i don't want that yeah, no it's good. um yeah that's not one that's not good it's <laughs> not good there's quite a lot of good um like i'd probably hang out in in any of the mass effect space station nightclubs they're all basically the same yeah like all nightclubs yeah they all remind me of actually actually all of them remind me of video game press events <laughs> yeah <laughs> like they're slightly too loud and no yes. one can have a conversation yeah and it's a little bit stagey a bit awkward and it's a little bit like someone's idea about what a nightclub might be like yeah and Lara Croft's there in a jungle rotating in a yeah indeed well. so maybe not them actually now that I said it but the uh the scum pub in Monkey Island that's a good one mm. if you like pirate stereotypes and nothing else <laughs> getting one conversation and one drink and it's grog mm, in terms of most satisfying drunk effects uh i mm. do think the gta series has traditionally done this well yeah they're pretty good they're kinematic kind of yeah pissed, the, which is what that's for as far as i can tell yep yep the uh what's the what's their euphoria physics is that is that the that's what i blame it on <laughs> uh yeah they've got very good uh sort of adaptive physics but their, their drug animations are very good I would agree with that. Mm. Um, there's good um, being drunk in Dragon Age, Inquisition, and Mass Effect Citadel. Bioware mm. went through a brief phase of That's enjoying yep. characters being drunk. Uh, it's a good one in The Witcher 2 and probably 3 as well. Mm. There's a good drunk quest there. Mm. Hidden away. Good. I think we've answered the question, Tom. Yeah, wow. We did it. <laughs> Incredible. No one thought it was possible. Yeah, I've done it before. Never do it again. Do it, yeah. We've done it 237 times. Apart from, actually, we didn't do it the first time, did we? Or did we? No, the questions on episode one? I don't think there were. I think it was back in the day where we Where thought, would we have gotten questions from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Tom. Good. Did we ask people to write in? I don't remember. Someone will know. It's also on the website. Mm. I don't know why I'm asking this. Uh, this is all the questions we had this week, however. So we have to stop now. Yep. Oh, well. Um, if you'd like to send us a question for a future episode, you can email us at questions at crowbar.com. You can also tweet us. That's where the internet is at crate and crowbar. If you'd like to, you can find this episode and other, other YouTube stuff on YouTube. That's at youtube.com forward slash crate and crowbar. And as ever, crate and crowbar is supported by our Patreon, which allows us to do this podcast and little spin-offs and other things, uh, including Interviews at Rest, which people seem to enjoy. We want to try and do some more stuff like that. Yeah, chats right. with developers. Cool. Uh, you find out more information about the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. And if you would like to uh, follow either Tom or myself as individuals on uh, internet website, uh, twitter.com, you can do so. Tom is at PCG Ludo, which is Eddie And I am at C Thurston, which is C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N. And all I have to say is... Uh, Vote Wario 2018. <laughs> no, don't stop voting Wario. Britain voted Vote today. Wario and if it's still Wario, I'm, I don't know what else we can tell you. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye. <laughs>